If you want to embarrass me, ask me about my prayer life. That was how our good friend David Turner, who's here this morning, began a sermon some time ago. And I'm embarrassing him here again this morning. And of course, most of us, including myself, would have to say exactly the same thing. That's one reason why this summer we are thinking about prayer uh, in the morning services, about praying like Jesus, and in our evening services, praying with Paul, the Apostle Paul. And this morning, as we've just heard read, we're thinking about the Lord's Prayer, there on page 970 in the Church Bibles. It's a model prayer, is often what's said, uh, and of course it is. In fact, it was actually modeled by Jesus himself on the Jewish prayer that he and his disciples would have been praying almost every day of their lives, uh, either personally or in the synagogue. It's a prayer that we know was prayed even back then. It's called the Kaddish still prayed to this day by Jewish people, and it goes like this. They would pray, Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he has created according to his will. May he let his kingdom be established in your lifetime, speedily and soon. Amen. That's the short, simple prayer that they prayed at that time. And perhaps that's what Jesus has in mind when he said in the verses immediately before our passage, you see there in verse 7 and 8, those long babbling repetitions uh, that people might pray, which Jesus says we don't need to. God is not like a kind of uh, exasperated parent uh, who needs to be pestered with a crescendo of whining children until they pay attention at all. No, God knows what we need even before we ask him, says verse 8, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask. It simply means that we're coming to a loving father who knows us better than we know ourselves. So yes, it's a model prayer. But here's a, it's not a model of every kind of prayer. Because, for example, it doesn't include adoration or praise or thanksgiving in this one. But, of course, we have the whole book of Psalms that gives us plenty of models of that. And also, the Lord's Prayer doesn't particularly include intercession for others. But then, if we want that, then we've got plenty of prayers, particularly in the Old Testament, for that. And at our summer gatherings during this summer, uh, we are looking at some of the prayers of the Old Testament. I'm not sure if these ones are there, but I've sometimes used to say to people, if you want models of intercessory prayer, then dial 999, because there are three chapters in the Old Testament, which are all chapters 9, which are models of intercession and confession. That's the prayers in Deuteronomy 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. So you might want to make a note of that for other kinds of praying. But the Lord's Prayer is certainly a petitionary prayer. That is, we're coming before God and we're making known to him our needs, our requests, the things we are asking of him. And so we begin with, as we all do in our Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. We come to God as our Father. Now, the Israel of the Old Testament, which of course included the disciples of Jesus at that time, those people, they knew God collectively as the father of their nation. God had actually said about Israel, he said it way back in the book of Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son. So the nation was a son of God considered as their father. And it was a very meaningful thought. It actually had two sides to it. On the one hand, uh, as father, it means that God is the one who would protect and provide for them as any good earthly father should do for his family. And God did do that all through their history. 
And the other side of that coin is, of course, that Israel then should obey Yahweh their God as the father of their nation, just as any son ought to obey his father. But they frequently didn't, which was a great source of pain and uh, almost bafflement to God. If I'm father, where is my honor? Where is my obedience, he says through Malachi. So with these two opening words of our prayer then, first of all, we are thankful to God that God is the Father who provides, protects, guards, keeps, feeds, strengthens, loves us as a church, as a father does, as a father should. We know that that is because he is our heavenly father, because so many earthly fathers and mothers fail in that kind of way, but this is God we're talking about, God our heavenly father. So that means, therefore, that we are indeed sisters and brothers, siblings, as it were, in the family of God, because it is our father we pray, not just my father. This is not just a personal prayer. It's a prayer that we pray as a church. We are the people whom God has adopted as his children. We are members of his household, as Paul puts it. But on the other side of that coin, of course, with those same two words, we're not only thankful to God for his provision and protection, we're also committing ourselves as a church, as a family of disciples, to walk in the paths of obedience to our Father God. And that means that we pay attention, careful attention, to what God our Father has taught us in his word, in the Bible, and that we then seek to align our lives, both individually and as a church family, to align ourselves with his truth, his standards. See, we can't, we can't pray this prayer every week addressing God as our Father and then live in disobedience to his word, whether as individuals or as a church. And so as a church, then, I would encourage us to pray this prayer, determined to go on walking in faithfulness and in obedience to our Father's teaching about what is best for human life and what is not pleasing to him or indeed good for us. So we come to God then as our Father. But then we have to move on to the content of the prayer itself. And if you look down at it, you'll see that it has two halves. There are three petitions for God and three petitions for ourselves. Now, I hope that I'm not the only one uh, in the congregation of a certain age able to remember the Spice Girls. Remember the Spice Girls? Uh, And that song they sang repeatedly, let me tell you what I want, what I really, really want, what you want, what you really, really want. Well, yeah. Jesus tells us to begin our prayer by focusing on what we really, really want for God. And it's actually interesting, isn't it, that this is a prayer not just to God, but for God. It's actually quite emphatic. The word your in, in, in the text comes three times at the end of each of the three petitions. And the word order is, is quite remarkable. There's a very heavy stress on the opening verb in each case. Here's how it actually comes from the lips of Jesus, if you sort of put it perfectly literally. It is, let it be hallowed, your name. Let it come, your kingdom. Let it be done, your will. That's the way it comes out. That's how we're to pray it. So here's the first then, let it be hallowed, your name, says Jesus. So we pray then that God would enable his own name to be hallowed, which means to be 
treated as holy, to be treated with respect and honor and glory that belongs to it, to his name alone. Because you see, in the Bible, the name of God stands for himself. In the same way that our names do. You use somebody's name, you're talking about them. So the name of God stands for him, his person, his character, indeed, his reputation. Just like we talk about, you know, my good name. You don't want to sully some's good name or give them a bad name. Similarly with God. It means that we live in such a way that we're either bringing honor and glory to the name of God in a way that shows the world what God is really like, which is what Christ did, or we are bringing shame and dishonor on his name by behavior that sometimes even the world would condemn. If you're a follower of God, if that's what you believe in, this is how you live. So Israel then were called to live in that way. Israel, in fact, were called by God's name. That's one of the ways in which they describe people who carried the name of God, the name of Yahweh. And they were commanded in the Ten Commandments not to do not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Which doesn't just mean using God's name as a swear word with bad language or something. It means behaving in such a way that would bring the name of Yahweh, the Lord their God, into disrepute among the nations. That's actually what happened uh, when God finally decided to judge the Israelites and disperse them into exile uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem. And God says through Ezekiel that when the nation of Israel was scattered, they profaned the name of the Lord, which doesn't mean they were going around cursing and swearing. It means they were making the name of the God of Israel as common as muck among everybody else. So people in the, in the conquering nation like Babylon, they would see these Israelite prisoners. And who are these people? Well, they're Israelites. Who's their God then? Oh, this God called Yahweh. Well, he's not much of a God then, is he? If he allows his people to be scattered. And so the name of the Lord God of Israel was being disgraced. And God says, that's why I'm going to bring you back for the sake of my own name. It's my reputation that I want to be glorified among the nations. Because, you see, God says in Psalm 138, verse 2, You, God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And if that's what God desires, if that's God's intention, then it should be ours also. And that's what we pray for in this prayer. And, of course, our longing for God's name to be honored means that we grieve when it's dishonored, especially if we're ashamed because the disrepute or the disgrace has happened because of ourselves. Speaking personally for just one moment, the deepest experience that I've ever had in my Christian life of repentance, I don't mean repenting to become a Christian, but repentance during my Christian life was when I was shuddering at the thought during a particularly sinful episode of my own life of what it would mean to bring disgrace on the Lord himself and everything that he had entrusted to me. And the road back out of that experience, the nature of the repentance, was precisely when I was able to realize that I needed to pray, hallowed be your name, and have a greater passion and jealousy for Christ's name to be honored, to outweigh the fear for my own name. That was where genuine repentance came. Hallowed be your name, your name, Lord, let it be honored in my life and others and in the world. So that's the first. Let it be hallowed your name. Then secondly, let it come your kingdom, says Jesus. 
Now, as I said, the the Jews of Jesus' time, they were praying for, they were longing for God's reign, for it to truly come, that God would really be king, not just king of Israel, but king over all the nations and all the world. The Old Testament scriptures, of course, when you read them, teach us that the Lord God of Israel was already sovereign. He's the Lord of all the earth. We were singing something of that uh, or saying it in, in Psalm 89 and many of the others. He's sovereign over all the nations, his universal governance of all history. And he was supposed to be king, truly king, of Israel. But the problem was, as the Old Testament shows very clearly, repeatedly, that neither in Israel nor among the nations was the Lord God actually acknowledged as the true king. On the contrary, people, even his own people, the people of Israel, were living in rebellion, rejecting him. And so the Psalms and others, they pray, Lord, let God arise. That's the word they use. Let him arise and let his kingdom begin. That was their vision and their hope, such as we have in many of the Psalms. Read Psalms 93 to Psalm 100, that little block, and you'll see this hope again and again. So what will it mean? See, the thing about the kingdom of God in the scriptures of Jesus and his disciples that they knew very well, the scriptures that we now call the Old Testament, the thing about the kingdom of God is that it was anything but private. It was utterly public. It was national. It was international. It was cosmic even. To to, to pray these words, to say these words, the Lord is king, or heaven rules, as Daniel puts it, meant that God is sovereign over every area of life on this planet. And the words that are most associated with the kingdom of God in the Psalms and elsewhere, that when God truly reigns, there will be justice and peace and truth and love. And these are huge words, massive words. Indeed, as we read in that Psalm 89, the very essence, the very definition of God's reign is that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. His reign is founded on justice. So to pray for God's kingdom to come then means, using Jesus' analogy, it means looking for those mustard seeds of God's reign. Remember how Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you, but it's like mustard seeds that are growing. And they need to grow in every sphere of human life, social, economic, political, in the workplace, in the home, in the neighborhood, in schools, hospitals, in the whole public arena. Seek first the kingdom of God, said Jesus, and his righteousness, justice. That's in line with the prayer that Jesus taught. And then if you pray that prayer, the point is, then live accordingly. Let your life be the life that is sowing those mustard seeds of God's kingdom wherever you live, in your work, in your acts of faith and witness and love and kindness, striving for justice and fairness and reconciliation, wherever you are in the world, then be seeking the justice of God's kingdom. That's one reason why, again, speaking a bit personally, I I struggle with our constant, almost relentless tendency in our Christian piety and worship, to to reduce this vision of God's kingdom down to a purely personal realm of me and my life. 
Now, I don't want to misunderstand you to misunderstand me because, of course, it must include me and my life. Otherwise, there's no point in praying it. But the whole idea of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is far, far bigger than that. Here's an example of, of, of what I mean. Uh, sometimes we sing this great song. Over all the earth you reign on high, every mountain stream, every sunset sky. So true, wonderful, isn't it? The great cosmic creational reign of God. But my one request, Lord, my only aim is that you reign in me again. Lord, reign in me. It keeps on repeating. Now, that's not wrong, of course. But if your one request and your only aim is for God to reign in me, then I suggest you haven't been reading the book of Psalms and you're not praying what Jesus meant when he said, your kingdom come. And then there's another one that we've just been learning recently, and again, it's a, it's a great song. It's turning the Lord's Prayer into a rising song, and that's good. We should do that. And we, so we sing, Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Well, yes, of course, it has to start right here in my heart. That, of course, is true. But the kingdom of God is far, far wider than that when it talks about the reign of God and God's will being done on earth as in heaven. Right here in this land, I want to sing. Right here in this nation. Right here in the Church of England. Right here in our church. Right here in our war-torn world in this burning, suffering planet. That's where I want the kingdom of God to be manifested and to be coming. Sometimes some of the older hymns got it a bit better, didn't they? Like, thy kingdom come, O God, thy rule, O Christ, begin. Break with thine iron rod the tyrannies of sin. Where is thy reign of peace and purity and love? When shall all hatred cease as in the realms above? Hymns like that, very old. Or a more recent one by Graham Kendrick, which still gets the same point. I love it. Beauty for brokenness. Hope for despair. Lord, in your suffering world, this is our prayer. Bread for the children, justice, joy, peace. Sunrise to sunset, your kingdom increase. Refuge from cruel wars, havens from fear, cities for sanctuary, freedoms to share, peace to the killing fields, scorched earth to green, Christ for the bitterness, his cross for the pain. Rest for the ravaged earth, oceans and streams, plundered and poisoned, our future, our dreams. Lord, end our madness, carelessness, greed. Make us content with the things that we need. God of the poor, friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray. That's something of what it means to be praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven And that leads, of course, then thirdly from let it be hallowed your name, let it come your kingdom to let it be done your will, said Jesus. Now, when the Bible talks about the will of God, it doesn't usually mean God's personal guidance for our individual lives, even though that's important. Of course it is. And God promises to guide us, to hold our hand, as it were, as we walk through life. The will of God, that expression in the Bible, means the outworking of God's purposes, God's kingly intentions for all nations, for all creation, for all history. That's the will of God. And what's that? 
Well, here's how the Apostle Paul summarized it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. This is God's will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the great mission of God. That's his sovereign will and purpose. And that, of course, is where the story of the Bible ends. The goal to which it's all pointing is the whole of creation, reconciled, healed, and unified through Christ, under Christ, by Christ. And Jesus urges us now to pray that God would bring things on earth now to begin to come into line with his ultimate purposes and will for the whole of history and creation. And that means, does it not, that as we pray this prayer, we should be bringing to mind those things which we know are not in line with the will of God, cannot be the will of God, and praying for God to do something about those things in our world and, if necessary, to use us to do so. For example, we know that God's will is that all people should come to repentance and faith and be saved. The Scriptures tell us that. That's what God longs for. So therefore it cannot be in line with God's will that so many millions of people in our world have never even heard the name of Jesus yet or the gospel. And that so many people here in our own country have no clue about who Jesus is as Savior and Lord. So what does our prayer for God's will to be done on earth lead us to think about that particular reality? Or another case, we know from Jesus himself and from the scriptures elsewhere that God has a special love and care for children, little children. Took one, put it right in the midst, didn't he? Jesus loved the children. So we know that it cannot be in line with God's will that there are four million children in our country now who are living in poverty. That's close to one third of all the children in this country with all the impacts that that has on their lives for their whole lives. That many of them said about a million go to school every day hungry, no breakfast, no lunch in their box. And that 130,000 children in this country are technically homeless as I speak, living in crowded, unstable, temporary accommodation with massive damage to physical and mental health and future educational prospects. And that's just this country. What do we think then before we even think about the horrors that are suffered by children in Yemen or Syria or Ukraine? So what is our prayer for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven? What does it lead us to think, to speak, to imagine, to act, to pray, to vote for in relation to such things? and many other, of course, social ills and evils in our land and elsewhere. You see, what I'm trying to say here is that this prayer, if we really mean it, is profoundly missional. These three petitions where we say what we really, really want for God, that his name should be honored, that his kingdom will come, that his will should be done, this aligns our praying with the ultimate mission of God, with his purposes. It aligns us with God's purpose and God's mission as we pray them. But don't get me wrong, this is not just wishes. This is not just some sort of long-term hope for the future. 
Although, of course, they point us to that. That will be the end of the story, the ultimate reign of God's justice and peace. But like the psalmist, when we think about the kingdom of God, as they did, we long for God to act now. God, please, will you do something about these things and put some of them right, at least? And since we know that God acts in this world through his people, then these prayers are also radically self-involving. How should we be living and acting in line with praying this prayer? Which means also, furthermore, that this prayer is also properly, biblically, political. And I don't just mean party political. What I mean is that realizing that these petitions for God's name and God's kingdom and God's will on earth as in heaven, they take us out into the public arena and they demand alignment with God's biblical teaching in those areas. Let me just read you something that I wrote in a book. It's a book called Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times. And sometimes when you put things in a book, I feel I can't say them any better myself. So I might as well read what I wrote then. The prayer goes, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. This is an astonishing prayer. We are asking that the rule of God and the will of God should operate on earth, not just up in heaven, not just at some point in the indefinite future, but do we understand it? Do we mean it? And if we mean it, do we act in relation to that prayer, in connection with our political opinions and options and decisions as citizens and voters? Serious praying of the Lord's Prayer must include doing at least some kind of hard thinking and decisions about what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. It ought to mean, for example, that we search the scriptures to see what God's kingdom actually means and demands in the Bible and what we might expect if it were to come as we pray. And likewise, we would try to discern from multiple Bible texts that address social and economic and political contexts what God's will is in those realms according to the Bible. The point I'm making is that in order to pray that that prayer of Jesus intelligently and with integrity, we need to know our Bibles well enough to understand what the kingdom of God and the will of God actually mean in relation to social economic life and all the diverse realities of work, employment, the marketplace, business, law courts, government, education, family, agriculture, health, creation, and so on. Because the Bible has plenty to say on all those areas of life. And they make it very clear what God's will in them is. And then, when we've done our biblical homework, we should pray for those values, the values of God's kingdom and God's will to be advocated for and striven for here on earth, in our own nation and neighborhood. But does that form any part of our desire or our intentions when we we repeat the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven? And if not, what's the point of the prayer? What's the point of praying for God's reign to come and God's will to be done on earth as in heaven if we don't even bother to think about what that means according to the scriptures that God has given us, let alone act on on what we discover? That's what I wrote. So that's the first of our thinking. What do we really, really want for God? It's missional, it's self-involving, and it takes us out into the world if we seriously mean what we pray. But we need to move on more briefly to the second part of our thinking. Not only what we really, really want for God, but what do we really need for ourselves? 
And that's where Jesus urges us to bring before him some of the basic needs that we have every day that God knows we need even before we ask him. Tells us that in verse 8. But Jesus still tells us to ask because when we ask, it focuses our mind on that daily journey of faith. And once again, just as in the first half, we were thinking of the three things we asked for God, here we have also three things that we ask for ourselves. We ask God, one, to keep us alive, two, to keep us free of debt, and three, to keep us safe uh, in spiritual ways we've come to. So first of all, we ask God to keep us alive by daily provision for our needs. There it is, can you see it, in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Or as some translations put it, our bread for tomorrow. Give us today what we're going to need tomorrow. But it's our daily need. Well, this is obviously the most basic of all, isn't it? I mean, God knows that we need food. He knew that when he created us. Because he created us as animals. Yes, animals made in the image of God. Yes. But like all the other animals, we need daily food and water and sleep and rest and shelter. We live within this created world and we have that basic human need for food. God knows it. Indeed, as one writer has said, the very first thing that God offered to his human creatures after he'd created us was a menu. Because God said, you are free to eat of any tree of the garden. There you are. Lots of choice there. Yeah, this is your menu. Any tree you like. Now, I expect that all of us here this morning in this room have experienced the answer to this prayer. We are well fed. We've got more than our daily needs fully met, I'm sure. But that would not necessarily have been so for the people who were listening to Jesus who were wanting to pray this prayer. Because he was living among people who were impoverished and downtrodden, those crowds of people who were struggling under Roman oppression and tax collectors and so on, such that bread today and bread tomorrow was not something they could just take for granted. This was a much more existential need for them to ask God for. As indeed, of course, it still is for millions of our sisters and brothers in this world, including, sad to say, many in our own country who are dependent on food banks, many of them provided by churches, people who are juggling whether today or tomorrow they might have to go without a meal so that they can put daily bread on the table for their children. So the least we can do is to pray this prayer on their behalf with the implications that it brings. There was a small, there is a small Christian community in Latin America, which I visited once, stayed there for a little while, and I loved the grace that they had before every meal. Each meal they would actually sing these words, obviously in Spanish, but this is what they were singing. Bless, O Lord, this our bread. Give bread to those who are hungry and hunger for justice to those who have bread, which I think was a powerful prayer and very much in line with Jesus' words. So that's the first. And then the second is not just give us our daily bread, but keep us debt-free by daily forgiveness, which comes in verse 12 where Jesus actually, his literal words are, release for us our debts. That's the words that he, release for us 
our debts. And that would have had a very strong resonance, again, with that crowd who would listen to Jesus. Because in a purely material sense, debt was a very real problem in that Roman-occupied Palestine that they lived in. Jesus knew that. We know he knew it because quite a few of his parables are to deal with that sort of issue. When he talks about debtors who owe a little or a lot and there is what could happen, and he knew perfectly well that people who fell into debt would very easily get sold into slavery. So debt was a big problem. To pray to God, release our debts, was something pretty powerful. But Jesus, of course, makes it clear just a moment or two later in verses 14 to 15 that he's thinking of something even more than just literal economic or financial debt. He's talking about sin. So you see it there in verses 14 and 15. Because we need God to relieve us, to release us from that slavery of the debt burden of our wrongdoing and our sin. And we need that daily release and forgiveness just as much every day as we need our daily bread. But as Jesus points out, to know God's forgiveness of our sins must go hand in hand with our own willingness to forgive those who have wronged us in any way. That's what Jesus means there when he, verses 14 and 15, the very challenging words that if you forgive other people when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's not meaning, of course, that we can somehow earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. I think what Jesus means is that if we harbor grudges and offenses that others have done, especially within the Christian family, and refuse to forgive other people, then Jesus is saying we haven't even begun to understand, let alone experience, what forgiveness means and what it means for God to forgive us and what it cost him. So that's the second one then. Keep us free of our debts, our daily forgiveness. And thirdly, keep us safe by daily protection. Verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, says Jesus, we are to pray. Lead us not into temptation? What? I mean, is Jesus telling us to ask God not to tempt us to sin? Well, of course not. The Bible is very clear that God never does that. James says he's neither tempted himself by sin, nor does he tempt us with sin. Sin comes from within our own hearts where it is resident. And temptation to sin comes either from our own desires within us or indeed from the evil one. And as the NIV footnote says, as you can see down the bottom of the page there, the footnote says that the word in our English Bible's temptation can also mean testing. And I think probably it would be better translated with testing here at this point. Because the Bible shows us that those who trust and follow God are going to be tested. Our faith and obedience to God is tested every day simply by living in the world, a world in rebellion against God, and we choose to follow him. So that will be tested, and God allows that. The Bible shows us in many cases. But what Jesus says here is that we can come to God and ask him not to allow us to be put to such severe testing that our faith and our obedience would be in danger, that we might fall away from him, that we might give up on being a follower of Jesus. Because that is certainly what the devil will be trying to achieve in any time of testing or struggle. He'll be wanting to do exactly what he did to Jesus. 
when Jesus was hungry and uh, in the wilderness, in his temptations after his baptism, and the devil comes in and tries to divert him, say, don't do this, follow me. The devil is good at doing that, which is why Jesus adds not only not to allow us to get into that kind of testing, but deliver us from the evil one, which I think is a good translation rather than just delivering us from evil, but from the evil one himself, from Christ's own experience. Because every day, any day, our love and our loyalty to Jesus can be tested, will be tested, will be threatened. And so we need to ask God not to allow us to suffer such testing that is greater than we can bear and to protect us from the attacks of Satan in our emotions, in our thinking, in our minds, in our choices as we go along. So there we have it then as we draw to a conclusion. Jesus encourages us to come to God as his family, asking for daily provision for our needs, daily forgiveness for our sins, and daily protection from the evil one. And those three petitions for ourselves, just like the first three, for God's name to be honored and God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, they have both a future and a present resonance and application. Because we know that in the future, in God's new creation, we shall have full provision. Be no more hunger or thirst there. We shall have full freedom from our sin. There'll be no more need for forgiveness anymore. And we shall have eternal security. There'll be no more danger, no more evil, no more evil one. But we live, don't we, in the meantime. And in the meantime, we are on this journey towards that ultimate destination. Journeying together as the family of God. Like the Israelites in the wilderness who were journeying towards that promised land. And they needed God's daily food, manna. They needed daily forgiveness as a bunch of rebels and grumblers, and they needed daily protection from their enemies. So this is a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer for the journey, for the journey of faith and obedience as the family of our Heavenly Father. It's a long journey. We don't know how long it's going to be, but it has a destination that we're looking forward to. And like children in the back of the car sometimes, you know, we cry out to God, oh, we're nearly there yet. Because we want to arrive. We long for that new heavens, that new earth, reunited at last, as Paul says in Ephesians, in which, yes, God's name and God's kingdom and God's will will be done on earth as in heaven, because heaven and earth will be one, united again in that new creation in which God will dwell with us forever. But in the meantime, we pray what Jesus taught us. We tell God what we really, really want for him, and what we really, really need for ourselves. And may God hear and answer our prayer. Let's pray together before we sing our next song. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask you to forgive us that so often we pray these words really without thinking at all, but simply reciting them from memory. Help us, Lord, to see in them something of your will and purpose, and then to seek to align ourselves, our lives as individuals and as a church, according to your mission and your will. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.